Right, good morning. Again, I'm Marty Cates, the associate uh, pastor here. Sean is away for a few weeks on uh, some much-needed rest and vacation, and so I'll be uh, preaching for the next couple of weeks, and then I'll take a week off while he's back for one week, and then I'll get a third week shortly uh, thereafter. And so for these next few weeks, we're going to take a break from the book of Ecclesiastes um, and be looking instead at, at some of the characteristics of God. You know, as we walk with him, we should desire to know him more and more deeply. And so we want to look at who he is and who he tells us he is. So you're here this morning and you're not, you're not Christians. You've got questions about Christianity. You've got questions about the God of the Bible. And what better way to answer them than through his own words about himself. And so over these next few weeks, as we look at these characteristics of God, as we seek to know him more deeply, we're going to look at his sovereignty, his holiness, and his wisdom. And this morning we will look at his uh, sovereignty. And so uh, let's turn to Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning in verse 28. And as we turn there, let's pray and ask the Lord for his help. Heavenly Father, we come this morning to your word and we ask for you to use it. We ask for you to open our hearts, open our ears, and that we might hear from you today. And that you might use your word, which you have told us is sharper than any double-edged sword. You might use it to cut us deeply, to draw us to the cross of Christ, that we might believe and repent. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's Word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for His glory. So as we turn to this passage uh, this morning as I was studying and, and reading this week, I was thinking of the times in life where this passage has been clearly in front of me. Remember, uh, growing up, uh, I lived down the street from one of my, my childhood idols. He played baseball at uh, Prince George High School and then at Virginia Tech, and he was drafted by the Baltimore Orioles, and he was a backup catcher his entire career. But he really made his name as a manager. And uh, Johnny lived maybe six or seven houses up the road from us. And he took a break uh, from managing. And as he was about to go back, he got diagnosed with a brain tumor. And he and his wife, Gloria, and their children went to our church. And I remember him standing in front of our congregation to give his testimony. And Johnny, the only thing that stands out that I remember is that he said, Romans 8, 28. And as my grandfather was diagnosed with, with liver cancer and it was getting worse, I just remember him saying, laying there in a hospital bed, Romans 8, 28. And then my dad would echo those words as his Parkinson's got worse and worse. Romans 8, 28. All three of these, these men went to this verse that opens our passage. That, that, that for those who love God, he works out all things together for their good. It was a verse that provided them comfort. It's a verse that, that really in many ways should be a life motto for us. 
So this morning we're going to look at, at this verse and we're going to start with the vast context that, that is surrounding this verse that, that Paul has written as he begins the, the letter to the Romans expounding upon God's sovereignty. And he starts with it in, in Romans 1. Romans 1, verse 20, he says that even, even the unbeliever, even the, the pagan, even those who don't claim Christ know deep down that there is a Creator. That they, that they know that there is one who is eternal and powerful God who created all things when they look out at creation. And it is only by their unrighteousness, by their wickedness, that they actively suppress the obvious and even deny it. It's obvious that there is a sovereign God who is the Creator God. But Paul takes it even further for us. He's saying that here that, that for, the, for the Christian, for that who, who's walking with Christ, that we have to take it not just that He's there in creation, but that His personal governance is still there in our lives each and every day, working all things together for our good. It's in His sovereignty that He is melding everything together for a particular purpose. We see numerous places throughout Scripture that His sovereignty is made plain. Genesis chapter 1 Holy Spirit is speaking through Moses and, and telling these, these people who are wandering in the wilderness waiting to enter the promised land. He, he, he tells them who have just come out of slavery what they need to know to live in freedom. And the first thing he does is tell them who he is. He tells them he's the creator of all things. That, the, that you know that the Egyptians worship the fish of the, the river and the birds of the air. They worship, worship the sun and the moon and Pharaoh himself. And God says, but your God's not like their God. Moses says, your God created the very things that they worship. So the very first thing that Moses teaches the former slaves who need to know how to be free is who their God is. And that their God is sovereign over all of creation. What does this mean? Well, it means he owns every square inch of it. He exerts his control over all of it. It is his personal property to do with what he so pleases. God is under no moral obligation to you or to me or to anyone else to make us happy because He made you. He made me. In Psalms 139, it says that He knitted us together in our mother's womb. He is, has sovereign rights over you and me. And that's the first thing we learn about His sovereignty. He made all things. He made everything out of nothing, and it's His. But He's not like my three-year-old who makes lots of things and walks away from them and never comes back to them. No, Scripture tells us that God stays intimately involved with His creation. He doesn't walk away. He, he doesn't leave anything to chance. He's personally governing everything each and every day in the universe. There is not an atom that is out of place. There is not a free radical that is not under His control. Every blade of grass, every leaf that falls, every drop of water in the ocean is in His hand. Everything that happens in your day, in my day, day in and day out, He governs. Why? Well, the psalmist says that the idols that we worship, whether it be our, our wealth or our, our beauty or our strength or the carved images, whatever they are, they are dumb idols, the psalmist says. It says that, that they can't do anything. These idols that the people of, uh, around God have made these carved images they put up on poles, they can't hear, they can't speak, they can't act. Then the psalmist says, but not your God. Your God is living. He lives in the heavens and He does what He pleases. He does whatever He wants. Now a lot of us think we, we 
do whatever we want. When I'm about, I'm about to do something really crazy at home, I always look at my wife and say, I'm my own man, I do what I want. And then I do something stupid. But we also know that there's not anyone that we know. There's not anyone in history, there's not anyone in the world who does whatever they please, whenever they please to do it. But God does. The sovereign God does what he pleases and he pleases to be involved intimately with you and with me and with all things. We see in Scripture that there are contexts that we, we, we have struggle understanding, that we have, have struggle wrestling with how can God be in control of all things. Some of those things that seem arbitrary or trivial, the, 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 the minutia of life. He knows every hair on your head, Scripture says, even the ones He has caused to fall out for those of you that are balding or bald. He knows them. He has control over all of them. He can't be in control of all things if he's not in control of the parts. If you come into a classroom and you ask the teacher if she has control of her class and she says yes, except for little Johnny over there, then you know she doesn't have control of her class. God is in control of all things, even the small things. Under God's sovereignty, there are no rogues. There are no rebels out of his control. And we get confused sometimes because we think, well, what about all the things that, that I'm doing, that, that I am and making decisions in and, and living my life in? And of course, you make decisions out of your, your moral will, absolutely. But what does Proverbs 21 tell us? Solomon writes as the king. He says, the king's heart is a stream of water and the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he wills. The decisions of a king the decisions of you, the decisions of me are determined by God's good governance, by His sovereign grace. What about the random things, the rolling of dice, the chances of life? Well, Proverbs says that you can cast the lot in the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Well, what's that mean? You can roll the dice. And then there's perceived for us, there's perceived chance. But every decision is from the Lord. God rules over all of it, everything even those things that seem arbitrary or trivial. We have trouble with it in our own salvation. Yet we look at the, the, the verses today, these passages today in verses 29 and, and 30, and it says that He has predestined you to become conformed to the likeness of His Son. And those who He has predestined, He calls. It's He who regenerates. It's He who gives you His Spirit and makes you His own because He's predestined you. If He calls you, He justifies you. Meaning he, He's done the work to make you right and acceptable. To make you lovely and righteous before the Lord. And notice that it's then that He glorifies you. It's in the past tense in our Bibles. Even though it hasn't happened yet for you and for me, it's in the past tense because when God sets it before Him, it is as if it's already done. Because He's the sovereign. He controls all things. This morning, this text should encourage us because our salvation, your salvation is accomplished not by me or by you, but by the one who is sovereign over all things and nothing can stop what God has determined to do, to make us his, to call us to himself, to justify us and sanctify us that we might be glorified in Christ. We struggle with his sovereignty in the context of evil. We look around the world and say, what about all these horrible things that are happening? Marty, you realize we're putting crates together to send over to a war zone, right? 
We see atrocities. We, we see suffering and hardship in our own lives. How do we make sense of it? In Lamentations chapter 3, the city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed and Jeremiah, the prophet, says, who can make things happen if not the Lord? He makes good things to happen. He makes bad things to happen. It says he causes calamity, but it will be he who comforts us. Isaiah says nearly the same thing in Isaiah 45, 7. Well, that doesn't mean that God creates evil. It's alien. We don't know where it comes from, but we know that when it enters the world that he has control over it. Job 1 and 2 tell us that the only way something can happen, that anything can happen, even the things that disappoint us, even the things that, that, that we despise only happen as they are filtered through God's loving hands. And that's hard. I want you to think about the worst thing that's ever happened to you. For some of you, that's some real bad things. The worst thing that's ever happened to you and realize that God was sovereign in that. That God's sovereign hand was in that. That He was governing it and controlling it. I know for many of you, those are atrocious things. Horrible things. But I'm telling you, there's not one thing happening in your life apart from the governance of God. Apart from the hand of your heavenly Father who loves you. And notice in the passage that it is everything. It's everything that is working together, including the hard things including the evil things, including the things that, that you, you look back on and go, how could God have been in that? That all things are being orchestrated by His sovereignty for our good. What possible good is there? I don't know the answers. What possible good there could be? But Paul says there is something that we know. That there is something that we know. Look, as I've got three girls, as they get older, I realize more and more there are a lot of things I don't know. They ask me tons of questions. I'm sure if you have children, you have been asked many questions and you don't know the answer to it. For you that, that, that had your children before the age of Google, I am sorry. Because now they can ask me and I can just turn my back and like type in and real quick and then I can turn around and give them an answer. That, this is how that works. But there are so infinite things we don't know. But Paul says we know this. That... That for those who love God, all things work together for good. But what good could possibly come? All kinds of good come from it. And I, I know some of you can, can see some of the good when you look back on the tragedies of your life, on the hardships of life. Let's look at verses 29 and 30, though, the good that, that God has in mind, the good that, that is in His eyes. He says what in verses 29 and 30? That we who are predestined into the likeness of Christ. That we are being called. That we are being justified. That we might be glorified. So that Christ might be the firstborn among many. That's his good. That's the good he has in mind. That's his determined purpose. That He is shaping us and molding us and relentlessly taking us to be made into the likeness of Christ. And so in those hard places, we may not know why or what it is He's trying to do, but we know the end He has in mind. That having been predestined, having been regenerated, having been called and, and, and justified, that we will be glorified. And that we will be made like Christ. It's not wishful thinking. 
It's not like my Christmas list or my birthday list where I, I, I hope I get this or I hope I can get that. No, this is the determined purpose of God. It says that, that, that all things will work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. When He created everything, He did so with a purpose. The children's catechism says, why did God create all things? And I can still hear my, my sweet little three-year-old's voice say, for God's, for His own glory. Created all things for His glory. But His children rebelled. And so He's not done. He could have poured out His, his justice and His wrath on us and, and, and been glorified in that and it could have been over. But God's not through. There's something about him letting evil into the equation that he's working out to show that his love and his grace is far greater than all the evil in the world. So that you and I will stand clothed in Christ as men and women and boys and girls who are triumphant over everything the devil threw at us. Who are triumphant over all the evil that we encountered. That we will look back and see those very things that were intended for evil, that God has transformed them, that God has redeemed even them, that He used them as the very instruments to sanctify us, the very instruments to glorify us. He has made things that were ugly and horrendous beautiful through His purposes. That's what Romans 5 says, that we are made to be like Him through our suffering, right? Not in spite of our suffering. So we don't, we don't have to know everything. But we know this. That those who love God, that all things, no exceptions, the good and the bad, all things work together for their good, who are called according to His purpose. And His purpose is to create a people, to create a people that are, are glorified. They will no longer rebel against Him ever again but they will glorify Him for eternity. That's His purpose. That's His stated purpose before us. And this is His relentless purpose. That's why verse 30 is often called the golden chain of salvation. That's why Spurgeon, when he looked at this text, said there's no stopping this God. That when he sets his mind on it, everything in creation, good and bad, is brought together to accomplish His sovereign purpose. What difference does it make? What difference does it make that he's working out his sovereign purpose? When we acknowledge God as the sole sovereign, when we, when we acknowledge that he is sovereign over all these things, we put him in his rightful place. We exalt him to the place that belongs only to him as the Lord of Lord and the King of Kings. We could exhaust the languages of the world every word in the dictionary that sing praises to Him and it would not be enough. When we exalt Him and we acknowledge it, He delights in this. He delights when His children know Him. Jeremiah chapter 9 says, if you are rich or wise or strong, don't boast about any of those things. Boast about this, that you understand and know Me. For these things I delight in, says the Lord. He delights when we acknowledge His sovereignty. And the reason's simple. It's who He is. You, you, you know that when someone recognizes you for who you are, you find joy in that. 
When someone sees your giftedness in something and, and, and praises you for it, you feel good about that. Well, so it is with the Lord. When we raise him to the place that is his and his alone, he rejoices. He finds joy. He delights in that. And there are times that, that we, we, we look at his sovereignty and we, we put caveats and, and qualifications and, 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 and conditions upon it. And we say that, that, that God couldn't have been in that. It's too horrific. And I would say that, yes, he was. And the degree to which we, we write those caveats and those conditions and those qualifications is the degree to which we don't know God. It's not the God of the Bible. The one true and living God is sovereign over all and does whatever he pleases. And he delights in his children knowing his heart and his powers. So if it exalts him to his rightful place, what does it do? It also puts us in our rightful place. If we raise God up to where he belongs, it means we unseat ourselves from the place of sovereignty in our lives. And it brings us to our rightful place. The easiest place to see this is, is in regards to our salvation. What does it take to be saved? It means to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of our sins. But where does that faith and repentance come from? The Bible says it comes from him. Out of his bounty, he pours out the blessing of faith and repentance upon his people. And in that, he is glorified and exalted. The very thing we need to connect to him, it puts us in our place. It humbles us to our rightful place as we see what is necessary. We are turtles on a fence post. If you've ever seen a turtle on a fence post, you know that it didn't get there on its own power. Turtles don't climb fences. Somebody picked it up and put it there. I'm here to tell you that somebody picked us up and put us into the family of God. That God put us up out of the depths that we might be glorified with Christ in the heavens. What did you contribute to your salvation? What did you bring to the table? You didn't bring anything but the sin that made it necessary. So it humbles us when we put him in his rightful place, when we acknowledge his sovereignty. It also assures us that's the whole point of Romans chapter 8, right? Is this, this assurity of our salvation, the assurity of God's love for us. How does chapter 8 close? Uh, close? It, it, it says that nothing will separate us from the love of God in Christ. He who starts a work in you, he, he who predestines you, he who calls you will finish the work and glorify you. All right, Philippians 1 tells us that. that he who began a good work is faithful to bring it to completion. He's not like us, or at least he's not like me. If you come to my house, I have about six house projects that I've started, and they're at various places of being finished. I'll finish them at some point. I was at a meeting last week, and there was a home builder there, and, and uh, his wife was there, and she was complaining that their house wasn't done. He was in the process of building them their dream house. And in the process of building them their dream house, he had finished three other houses. And they were still in the rental that they were living in. And she was just like, why can't you work on ours? And, and I understand it. The other, the other houses brought in money and, and the livelihood they needed to live. But he was like showing me pictures about how, how much progress he had actually made trying to defend himself. And there was very little progress made between September and July. That's not God. What he begins, he finishes and not because of anything you do or anything that, that I do, but because of his sovereign grace at work in you. He will finish what he started. 
It humbles us. It assures us. It comforts us. In those times of, of hardship, it comforts us. We might not know the complete answer, but we know the ending. And so we can look at it and, and, and ask God, God, how are you working? What are you doing here for my good? What's going on in this? Because we know that he is completely sovereign. Often when, when bad things happen, we, we can get in our minds that maybe he's only partially sovereign, that he didn't care enough to stop it. He wasn't really paying attention this time or that time. It's just not true. Nothing falls through the cracks. Nothing's left to chance. And definitely not you. It also transforms us. When we begin to live in light of God's sovereignty, it transforms us. It transforms how we see the world and how we live. And we see this in, in Scripture, in the story of Joseph. If you don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph got this fancy coat and had these dreams. And his, um, his brothers didn't like him very well. And I got a feeling we wouldn't have liked him very much either. And he went out with his brothers and they decided, you know what, like, we're going to end him now. And so they, uh, they dug a hole and put him in it and left him. And then they were like, well, let's do a little bit better than that, you know. And so they sold him into slavery. And they went home and told Jacob, ah, wild animals got him. He's dead. We're sorry. His body's out in the desert somewhere. And his father, his father weeps and grieves the loss of his son. And all the while, Joseph is spending the, the, the best years of his life, his youthful vigor in prison. In prison. And by God's sovereignty, he's raised up out of prison. He becomes the prime minister, essentially. Right-hand man to Pharaoh. In control of everything. In God's sovereignty, his brothers get hungry and they come to Egypt looking for food. And he recognizes his brothers. And they don't recognize him at first. He reveals himself to them and they're scared. And he's like, oh, don't be scared. And he provides for them and he cares for them. And then towards the end of Genesis, Jacob dies. And his brothers have a little powwow and think, what if he was just being kind? What if he was just being good because daddy was still alive? And now that daddy's gone, he's going to exact his revenge on us. And so they, they come before Joseph, the brothers do, and they throw themselves at his feet. And, they, and then they say to him, we are your servants. We are your servants. Make us your slaves. Don't kill us. Have mercy on us. And Joseph says this. Joseph says, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, what you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. He sees God's sovereign hand, evil in the, in, even in the evil his brothers visited upon him. So he says, don't fear. What you meant for evil, the Lord has used as for good. But he takes it a step further. You see, in, in, in that culture, if you were uh, going to take revenge, you wouldn't just kill the people that were against you. You would kill their children. So there wouldn't be any rebellion in camp. There wouldn't be a usurper among those. And so he says, do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. I'll provide for you and your little ones. The sovereign grace has transformed Joseph's heart. But here's the thing. We, we hear words like this. 
in the New Testament. Jesus is there and the children are coming to Him and the disciples are trying to keep them away and He says, no, let the little ones come unto Me for theirs is the kingdom. As the apostles are proclaiming the gospel, they say, this is for you and for your children. Those who were once sons of disobedience have been made sons of the Most High God through their older brother. For He who has predestined us, has called us, has justified us, has sanctified us and has glorified us in Christ. It's not just for you and for me, it's for the little ones. That we would know His love. That we would know His sovereign grace and that we would rest as turtles on a fence post. Been placed in the greatest places by the hands of our Heavenly Father. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we rejoice at Your great love. We rejoice at your sovereign grace. That you, who are good and wise and righteous, that your hand is over all things. That you are in control of all things. So Lord, we ask that you show us in the hard places of life what you are doing. How you are molding us and making us more and more into the image of Christ Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.